Luke 23, verse 50, beginning. Now, behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and a just man. He had not consented to their decision. Indeed, that was the Sanhedrin that had made the decision that Jesus needed to be crucified. He was from Arimathea, city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus that had been hanging on the cross. They had to now take it down. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock, his own personal tomb, I might add, where no one had ever lain before. He was preparing for the day he would die. Like you buy a burial plot in advance of your own funeral. That day was the preparation. And the Sabbath drew near. And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after. And they observed the tomb and how his body was found. Or was laid rather. And then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils. That is after hurriedly taking the body down and putting it in the tomb. They returned back to take spices and mix them together in fragrant oils and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. Now what were they going to do with those spices and oils? Luke 24 verse 1 through 3. Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. They did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. My message today is going for a funeral but attending a resurrection. Going for a funeral but attending a resurrection. Father, I cannot even begin to express to you or articulate the feelings that overwhelm me or my gratitude. For what you did for us in giving us your only begotten son. I want to thank you for every stripe on the back of Jesus. I want to thank you for the suffering. For the immeasurable love that that demonstrated that you have for all of us. We can never repay you, Lord Jesus, for what you've done. But we certainly want to try with our praise. And we give you praise. In the name of Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Shout it out loud. Amen. Amen. Going for a funeral, but attending a resurrection. There's nobody here, I would dare say, that is not familiar with what it's like to get ready for a funeral. Over the course of the past year, this pandemic has taught everyone, if you had been fortunate enough to have been spared up until this time, it's taught you what it's like to have to go to a funeral. When families go through loss, the church is supposed to be there for them. People depend upon the church in times of bereavement. We've had a lot of experience with funerals over the years. The past years only made that even much more profound. Lots of people have to face loss because it is an inevitable reality of being in this world that being born is only one half of the equation. The other half is someday you'll die. Years ago when the church first began growing, I did as many as four funerals in one day one time. That was before I had great pastors to help me and 
were part of our staff and we have wonderful pastors who love and serve people so well. But death is just that common. And every one of us know what it's like to prepare for and attend a funeral. Our text in this story begins after the crucifixion of Jesus had ended on Friday afternoon. He had been hung on the cross, nailed to the cross at 9 o'clock in the morning on Friday. And at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, he lowered his head and with his last breath shouted, It is finished, and died. The Jewish people count the hours of a day differently than we do. For us, a new day begins at midnight and concludes at midnight the following day, 24 hours later. Not for them. Based on the scriptures in the Genesis account of creation found in Genesis 1, they begin their day at 6 o'clock in the evening. You know those six verses in Genesis 1 that all say the same thing. The evening and the morning were the first day. They don't wait till midnight. They start it in the evening at 6. And so the Sabbath was literally about to begin. Three hours from when Jesus died, it would be the Sabbath. And they had to hurriedly entomb Christ temporarily. Get him off the cross and find a place to put his body before 6 o'clock. Because the law forbid them to conduct any kind of work even if it was a funeral on the Sabbath day. And so they quickly took him down. Joseph of Arimathea did. He had just hewn a new tomb. Preparation for the eventuality of his own death. And they had shrouded Jesus in a burial shroud. As some say as the shroud of Turin. And they had put him in the tomb. And they had sealed the tomb. Pilate had placed a contingent of soldiers there. And the tomb had been sealed and the soldiers kept watch because there was this rumor floating around that Jesus was going to rise again. And it's important that we recognize that that rumor was circulated. And certainly people that were among his own disciples would have heard it. But at six o'clock in the evening, they had to be done. That means they quickly put him in the tomb, hurried back, mixed the spices in preparation because they couldn't do that on the Sabbath day either. On preparation for, in preparation for the fact that early Sunday morning at first light, they were going to go to the tomb of Jesus and they were going to do a proper interment. It had been a hasty kind of a quick get him off the cross, throw him in the tomb deal on Friday afternoon because The Sabbath is coming in three hours, but we'll do a proper burial this coming Sunday. And so they went back to the tomb, but when they arrived there, they were stunned to find that things were not as they expected. They had been asking the question among themselves, who's going to roll the stone away? But to their amazement, when they got there, that massive stone had already been moved And they peered inside and looked and and there was no one there. Mary had an encounter with Christ because she thought it was a gardener that she had met. And she said, can you tell me where they have laid the body of my Lord? And Jesus looked at her and said, Mary. And when he said that and called her by name, like God calls us by name, like God calls you by name. Something inside of her resonated and she said, Master, 
and she realized it wasn't the gardener at all. And she hurried back the lady's head and they told the disciples and the disciples were astonished. You might wonder why the ladies went first. It was because in their culture, it was the responsibility of the ladies like it still is in many Middle Eastern countries today to prepare a body for burial. It was the men's assignment to carry the body for its burial, but the women had to prepare it. And so they came to prepare the body. The disciples had intended to come later, do a proper internment. But instead, when the ladies came rushing back in, all breathless and said, he's not there. They were alarmed. And they began to go toward the tomb. Peter and John ran. And they got there in front of the others and ahead of the rest and looked inside the tomb. And there were angels that were sitting there. And the angels Ask them the pointed question. Why are you here seeking the living among the dead? He's not here. He is risen. And they didn't know what to think about it. You see, surprises can have far-reaching if unexpected and unintended consequences. Many of us know what that's like. We do things and, and we, we don't realize there are consequences attached, both good and bad. Which is why it's always important that we think through some of the things that we do and speaking of of unexpected consequences i hope it's okay to tell this story <laughs> i was preaching for a friend of mine in denham springs louisiana years ago named ray johnson and after service we decided he decided that we were going to go out and fellowship and that he wanted us to go with him and we were going to go to the home of one of his families in the church they'd invited us over and prepared a meal and so we got there and the guy was quite a storyteller now he tells this story to be the truth i hope it is but he said he was raised on a farm with lots of farm animals and a, a big chicken house that was just field chock full with chickens and he said it was winter and back in the day some of y'all don't even know what i'm talking about but those old country houses didn't have central heat or air amen and so the old man his dad slept in long handles that's long johns and if you know anything about long johns some of y'all don't even know what those are they got two buttons right here on the back and a flap and so one of the buttons had come off and the flap was hanging but it was okay. The old man was in bed, right? And all of a sudden there was this commotion that was being raised in the hen house. Chickens going crazy. And old blue, they had a dog, hunting dog that was old and, 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 and lost its sense of sight almost completely and smell and hearing. Old blue began to howl. Oh. And the, the old man, it woke everybody in the house up. And the old man knew immediately what was going on. There was a fox in the hen house. So he grabbed his double barrel shotgun in his long johns, ran out the door, cocked both hammers back, got to the chicken house. And he didn't know that old blue blind, unable to smell was following right behind him. And the flap was hanging open. And the old man stopped when he got to the hen house so his eyes could adjust to the light or the darkness rather, the dim light. And old blue didn't seem stopped and he kept going. And his cold nose touched a certain part of that man's anatomy that was uncovered. The guy said that his dad let go with both barrels of that shotgun. It startled him so bad. And we all laughed and he said, wasn't funny then. He said, it took us two days to clean all the chickens. Amen. <laughs> oh, 
unintended, unexpected consequences. Well, I've got news for you. There's consequences to the resurrection too. And you and I are still feeling the impact of those consequences 2,000 years later. Jesus is alive. Can you hear me? He has risen from the dead. Hallelujah. I have several salient observations that I would like to make about this story. Number one, it's clear there was a problem. The problem wasn't what they thought it was though. The problem wasn't that the body wasn't there. The problem wasn't that the stone had been rolled away. The problem wasn't even that Jesus has, had risen from the dead, if I can even be so bold as to phrase it that way, but they had a problem. And the problem was this. They were preparing for his funeral when they should have been getting ready for his resurrection. Hello, somebody. After all, for three and a half years, they'd been hearing Christ preach that this very thing was going to happen. Hadn't he taught them in Matthew chapter 21, verse 38, about the, 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 the kingdom of heaven like being like a man that loaned out his vineyard uh, to tenants who paid rent and he sent his son to collect the rent and they killed him? Hadn't Jesus told them about that? Or how about this? In Caesarea Philippi, Mark's gospel records that Jesus told his disciples that he would be betrayed, delivered to the high priest and killed, but that he would rise again. That's pretty plain. And then in John 2, Jesus had even told the Pharisees who were going to perpetrate this crime that you can destroy this temple, but in three days, I'm going to raise it up again. They had been there. They had heard that. And in Matthew 20, 18 through 19, Jesus had told his disciples plainly, behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. This is just before the crucifixion. And the son of man will be betrayed to the chief priest and to the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. And the third day he will rise again. The point is this. Clearly, he had told them what was about to happen. It just seems that they were so intent on having a funeral that they didn't realize what they should have been doing was preparing for resurrection. And I just wonder how many of us find ourselves in the very same circumstance. We're facing death of some form, a manifestation, death of a career, a job. A business that died. I've talked to people that are struggling because of the polar vortex that occurred just a few weeks ago. I mean, it did a number on businesses. This whole pandemic has done a number on, on small businesses. Restaurants and others have been affected so catastrophically. And you know, if you're not careful, what you'll end up doing is preparing for a burial. When you ought to be preparing because of Calvary and Easter for a resurrection. I'm talking to somebody right now. Maybe you've gone through so much in your relationship, you don't think it can survive. But I've got good news for somebody today. Jesus wants to resurrect what you think is beyond hope. Somebody give God some praise in this house today. Hallelujah. And there you are preparing your spices. 
and preparing the incense and you're looking for a burial. You're looking for something to be over because it's dead. You see, to be fair, the disciples had a reason to prepare for the funeral. I mean, at the time Jesus' crucifixion occurred, they just simply weren't able to wrap their mind around the concept. The death had been so catastrophic, so devastating, so horrific that there's no way he could come back from that was what they were thinking. They had been there. They saw him beaten until his back looked like raw hamburger meat with the skin flailed off of it with a cat of nine tails. They were there whenever the Roman soldiers platted that crown of thorns out of acacia thorns that are that long, literally, and put them on his brow and then put a board on top of it and pounded on the board with their fist to drive the thorns into his brow. They were there. They saw him pick up the cross. And that was after he had been pummeled and beaten until his face was swollen and lopsided and his eye black and they plucked out his beard. And oh, the suffering that he went through is beyond description. The Bible said it like this. His visage was marred more than that of any man. And there was no comeliness left in him that we should desire him. Meaning that he was so bruised and misshapen and swollen by the beating that he had received, that any handsomeness that he had was gone. And he picked up the cross and carried it down that street that is called the Via Dolorosa. I've been there and walked it many, many times. And history says every place he put his foot, he left a footprint of blood. He was bleeding so profusely. The 14 stations of the cross are all there. They say that he stumbled three times, history tells us. And finally they compelled Simon, a Cyrenian, to pick up the cross and help him carry it. And he got to the top of the hill and then they took a spike like a railroad spike and crossed his feet and pounded until that spike went in at the upper part of the foot and threw the leg, both of them, into the wood of the cross. And then they stretched out his arms and nailed his arms to the cross. And then picked the cross up and it stood there weaving because of the, it was imbalanced, top heavy. And they edged it to the edge of the hole they had dug and one soldier kicked it and it falls in with a thud and Jesus' body tears. And he cries out and for six hours he hung on that cross. And six hours he bled until there was no blood left in him. And finally at three o'clock he cried out, It is finished! And he died. They had watched all of that. And so to be fair to the disciples, they were close enough that, man, seeing that, you don't think anybody comes back from that. And that's what some of you are thinking right now about your situation. You don't know where I'm at. I can't get back. I can't recover from this. Yes, you can. Because of Easter and the resurrection, there is hope. Somebody ought to give God some praise today. Woo! Death is the one challenge that we've not been able to conquer. We can climb Mount Everest. We can plumb the depths of the ocean and the bathysphere and go to the very deepest part of the Marianas Trench, the deepest part on the face of the earth. 
We can soar across the heavens and land a man on the moon or even go beyond to Mars where they've just not long ago landed a vehicle there. But what we can't do is conquer death. We can cure diseases that science once thought would never be cured like polio and, and, and smallpox. Well, they still struggle with this whole COVID thing, but the bottom line is simply this. Man has done so many things that he thought and we thought were impossible that it is amazing. But the one thing nobody can deal with is death. You see, no scientists, none, you may think they do, but they don't. And they will tell you when you pin them down, they don't. That there is not a single scientist out there that understands consciousness, not one. They don't know why the spark of life is in you. They don't know what makes conscious thought occur. They don't know how it ever got there. All they can tell you is when it's gone. And the disciples watched the spark extinguish in Jesus' eyes and die. And they said, that's it. It's, 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 it's hopeless now. It's over. But you see, as believers, the disciples should still have been preparing for resurrection. How do I know that? I know that because Jesus, as I said already, had told them that he was coming back. And if Jesus, the living word, had foretold it, let me tell you this. When your circumstances look impossible, if God has given you a word, trust the word and not the circumstance. Somebody shout hallelujah. You say, but you don't know what I'm going through. All I know is this, is that the word of God, if God ever gives you a word, that heaven and earth will pass away, but his word will never, never, never pass away. Stand on the word. Trust the word, not your situation. Believe what God said, not what the circumstance is telling you. Believe what God said, not what the doctor said. Believe what God said. Not what the counselor said. Not what the attorney said. Sometimes we allow our circumstances to be more real to us than what God has decreed over us. And you should never do that. Christ had actually expected them to believe. How do we know this? Because he appeared to two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection. Do you remember that? Luke 24. There were two guys walking down the road to Emmaus. They were disciples and they were really, really distraught. And you could tell their their hearts were filled with consternation and questions. And Jesus joined them, but he, he appeared in a different form so they didn't recognize him. And he walked up and said, what are you guys so upset about? And they said, man, are you a stranger in Israel? You don't even know what's happened in Jerusalem the last several days. They, they took Jesus and they told the story. They crucified him. And then <laughs> some of the disciples are now telling us that he's risen from the dead because they went to the tomb and it was empty. And, and man, we were there. We saw it. I mean, this is, this is a tough one. Uh, and, and, and I know that he said that, all, but, but I saw him die. And this is what Jesus said to them. He said, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scripture, the things concerning himself. And starting way back in the Torah, he started giving all the prophecies that he would. The scripture had said, indicated he would come. 
and be buried and rise again. And the Bible said their hearts burn within them. And that's what God will do when you stand on his word. He will set your heart on fire. And he will give you hope that nothing can extinguish. I'm talking to somebody right now. You don't have much hope. Put your hope in the word of God. God will build a fire in your heart that your situation will not allow to go out. As I close, one of the most important questions that you can ask on Easter is this. Why was Jesus resurrected? First, you see, he came to pay our debt in full. And that's important because we owed a debt we could not pay. And he paid a debt he did not owe. But to do so required that he die. Our sins could only be atoned for in death. The Bible said without shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. And he shed his blood. But if he had only died, that would not have been enough. Because what happens next? If he dies for you and for me that our sins could be forgiven, what are we going to do tomorrow? Because we're still human. We're still flesh. We still struggle. There was a reason he came to life. He came to life that we might have newness of life. He came even after our debt was paid, he rose from the dead to say, I will live in you and give you strength that you never possessed before in your life. Second reason he was resurrected was to show the enemy that Satan, you're defeated for all time and not just at this moment. Because you see, when Jesus died on the cross and slumped, his head onto his chest and shouted, it is finished. The story didn't end there. Uh-uh. He slipped off that cross in spirit and went down to hell. Barged right through the gates. Right up to the throne where Satan sat. And said, you got some keys I've come after. I've come after the keys of death, hell, and the grave. I've come to take my keys back. I've come to take my keys back. I'm talking to somebody that needs a key to a door that's locked. God's got the key. God's got the solution. There's yet another reason that Christ rose. And it is because he wanted to show us that nothing is beyond the reach of God. Resurrection was meant to show us what he could do. If we will simply call on his name and believe. And I'm talking to somebody in this building right now. That you're experiencing death maybe in your marriage. Happens doesn't it? One out of two in a divorce. You're experiencing death in a career. Talking to somebody that's experiencing death in terms of your own personal life and your habits and your weaknesses and they've got a hold of you and addictions can grind you into the ground. You begin to believe that there's no hope. But what Jesus wants you to understand is when you look at that empty tomb right there, that if he could resurrect himself, if God would raise him up from the dead, your marriage is not behind, beyond hope. Your life is not beyond hope. Your business, your career, your future, your finances, your ministry. I'm talking to somebody right now. You need to look at your neighbor and say, there is hope. Would you do that? There is hope. Amen. 
Nothing is beyond his help. I want to close. Think of Pastor Kent Brown. Some of you knew him. Kent was a ministry son to me. I buried two of my ministry sons with six days apart from each other not long ago. Kent pastored in ministry and pastored a church in Liberty and we were very close. His wife Penny is an incredible lady. They were an amazing couple. They loved God. They served people. I want to show you how much Kent loved God. You know what his, his email address was? Worship Man Brown. That was his email address. Kent loved God. I was overseas whenever I had a voice message left on my phone. And it was Kent. He said, Pastor, Penny and I are sick. Did you pray for us? So I called. We talked. Turns out he had COVID. We text back and forth because I was in Africa. And when I landed, the day I landed on a Saturday, I called him. And he didn't answer right away. And he texted. And I found out that he was in ICU in Kingwood Hospital. We text back and forth for several days. I was praying for him. And then one day he didn't return my text. And I called Penny and I asked what the problem was. And she said, Pastor, she said, I'm so concerned. She said his oxygen sat levels were dropping and they had to put him on a ventilator and he was fighting the ventilator. So they put him in a medically induced coma. And man, my heart sank because I've heard those stories too many times over the last year. And he stayed in that condition. He was in ICU for six weeks, actually, if I remember correctly. Every night I was waking up. I was waking up in Africa. I'd wake up all during the night and go into intercession for Kent. When I got home for four weeks, I was waking up during the night, going into intercession. And finally, on a Saturday, a Friday night, Saturday morning, five o'clock in the morning. And, and I'm going to tell you a story and some of you are going to struggle with this. And I, I know it already, but it's okay. You can say whatever you want to, but I know it was real because I, it happened to me. And I've never had an experience like this. Five o'clock in the morning, I woke up. I'd been waking up during the night praying. And at five o'clock in the morning, my eyes popped open and I sensed somebody standing near me. I sleep on the left side of the bed on my left side. So I, I rolled over and there was Kent Brown, luminescent. It was clear to me that it was his spirit. And Kent, without opening his mouth, spoke to me and said, it's okay, dad. I'm okay. I'm all right. And it disturbed me so much. I mean, it just really upset me. The next morning, I came to service. I'd already told Andrew. Also, Robert Pace is in the building. You can find him and ask him or Steve Miller. Because they both came by my office the next morning on Sunday. While Kim was still in ICU and I shared with them what had happened. I said, guys, I'm just really, really afraid of what this could mean. And the implications. It's not what happened, but it's what it could mean. That really worries me. And I asked, what do you think it, it is? And they said, we don't know. Now, you see, I've studied enough that I understand that if you were to ask a psychologist or tell this story to him and ask what it meant, he would say, I willed it because of my deeply held convictions in the afterlife. And that a subconscious level on you, Kent, was about to leave. You were to ask a counselor, he would say, oh, that, that was a coping mechanism that came to, into work. 
and, and protect you because you sensed that something was going to happen. You had deep concern. A scientist would say, oh, that's because of your, your concern about him that, that even while you were sleeping, the neurons were firing and that this was actually a dream. But you listen to me because I want to tell you something. It was not a dream. It was not a dream. I saw him. I told Robert and I told Steve and I told Andrew. It was not a dream. I saw him. I saw him. Theologian would say it was just my inner being trying to find meaning and expression beyond this life. I knew it was more than any of those things. You see, again, I say science cannot explain consciousness. The Jewish people believe that when you die, that the body lingers near the grave or near the body, I should say, that the spirit lingers near the body. Let me say that right. For three to seven days after you die. That's what they believe. I was scheduled to fly out that Sunday afternoon. That was the day after I had that experience at five o'clock in the morning. And I called Penny and I, I couldn't tell her what had happened because I didn't in any way want to discourage her. I just simply told her, Penny, I'm supposed to travel today and I'm really thinking about changing my mind and canceling. And she said, oh no, pastor, you go. They won't let us in the hospital anyway. And God can hear your prayers from Africa as well as he can from here in Houston. So you go ahead and go. And I said, are you sure? And she said, yes. So I took off and I landed there Monday night and Tuesday morning, Kent was called home to be with God. It was three days after I'd had that experience. And you see, we don't really know because science doesn't understand consciousness. You don't know what's going on just because that machine keeps causing the lungs to inhale and and expand. And you don't know what's really going on, do you? I don't think anybody does. But Penny kept telling me, Pastor, I want you to pray because I don't want Kent to see something. She told me all the previous week. I don't want him to see something while he's over there in that condition that is so wonderful that he doesn't want to come back home to me and the the grandkids. Oh, that tore me up. I had to immediately turn around and change my flight and get a PCR COVID test done and get back on the plane and come home and... And I preached his funeral on Sunday. I was here in the office. I wasn't in the auditorium either service that morning. I watched the service from my office. I was so upset I couldn't come out. And I went and preached his funeral that afternoon. I drove over to Liberty. The building was jammed. Ken's little building would not have seated the crowd. So they had to borrow a church from a pastor friend of his there. And I guess it's the largest church building in Liberty. And they jammed the place. Every seat was taken. People standing around the auditorium out in the lobby. Out in the overflow in the gym that connected to the lobby. And I had a mask on the whole time. Now I want to tell you this story. So I want you to listen. My iPhone was in my back pocket. The whole time. And so I I went up and I preached the funeral. Took my mask off to preach. And then when I got done, I I went and sat down. I held my iPhone in my hand for just a second. But but I put it back in my pocket because some of his ministry sons were, were singing worship songs. And it took them about 15 minutes. And then the funeral ended. So I stood up with my phone in my back pocket and walked over to the casket and stood there and there was a processional and every single person in that building came 
in front of the coffin and stopped and greeted the family and hugged them and prayed with them. And it took the better part of an hour in addition to the 15 minutes that I'd sat there while his ministry sons were playing worship songs. And finally we were done. I greeted the pastors that I knew. When the last person came through the line, greeted Penny, the family, greeted the pastor of the church that had loaned the use of the building, thanked him for letting my son in ministry have his service there. And then I went to the core and I still have my mask on and I've got my coat on, right? And my phone is in my back pocket and I keep emphasizing that and you'll see why. And when I got to the car, I took my coat off, hung it in the back and my mask is still on and my phone is still in my back pocket. And I got in the front seat and I took my mask on, but my phone was still in the back pocket. My phone doesn't recognize me with a mask on. It won't open. I have to actually punch in the numbers. If you have facial recognition software on your phone, maybe you've set yours up differently, but mine doesn't know me. And I've just left it like that. And I had to back up. There were two police vehicles in front of me. I backed up, went around them, went to the corner, took a left, went a block, took another left, and drove to the main road and stopped there. My phone is in my back pocket. Now, I should tell you something about me and Ken. We attended a funeral of a friend of ours, Pastor Randy Bowerman in Dallas, oh, about 10 years ago. And the very last song that they played at Randy's funeral, and he had it played, was this song, I Hope You'll Dance, by Leon Womack. And it was Kent's way of telling everybody, or rather, uh, uh, Randy's way of telling everybody there, hey, Just because I'm going on doesn't mean life is over. Continue to live life. You still have a future. You still have a destiny. It was his way of telling his wife, Julie, and everybody there, keep on believing God. Keep moving forward. Don't fear the mountains in the distance. Keep trusting God. And you know what Kent and I did after that service? We laughed about that song because it was so much like Randy. So much like Randy. And we laughed that Randy would care that much about his family and be willing to do that for them. It's okay, family, friends, I'm gone, but you still have life to live. Now, I should also tell you something else. I have a lot of songs downloaded on my phone. I love music. I want you to see how many I have downloaded on my phone. I have 6,898 songs downloaded. Go ahead and take it off. I don't want anybody hacking my phone or anything. (laughs) Okay, that was a joke. Amen. A unique thing about the iPhone is if you have facial recognition software and you carry your phone in your hand like many of us do, and you're carrying your phone without your mask and it looks up and it sees you, it can open the screen. And if your thumb happens to be on your iTunes library app, it will play the last song that you played. I've had that happen a number of times. Well, I happen to know what the last song I played was because I was sitting in Africa waiting to board my flight to come home and I pulled up another song that Ken and I, I'd sent it to Ken actually. 
There was a famous blues guitarist that was inducted into the Blues Hall of Fame. Y'all don't know, but I love the blues. Amen. The three kings, B.B. King, Freddie King, and Albert King. Amen. Those were the kings. Amen. Stevie Ray Vaughan, you can throw him in there too. Listen. I sent this song to Kent, and it was from Landon Spradlin, who got converted and became a pastor. And he would do these outreaches and play blues gospel music that he wrote. And I sent one to Kent. And so it made me think of it. Well, I'd just gotten the news that Kent had passed. And so I'm sitting there waiting to catch the plane. And I pull up that song and I play it. The one I'd sent to him. That was the last song I played. But while I was sitting there getting ready to turn to come back home from Crosby, my phone was in my back pocket. And it started playing this song. Would you play it? I hope you never lose your sense of wonder. You get your fill to eat, but always keep that hunger. May you never take one single breath for granted. God forbid love ever Just in case you think that was coincidental, the odds of my phone playing that song in my back pocket were one out of 6,898. And I pulled my phone out of my pocket. I started crying. I couldn't help it. And I looked and my screen was still locked. It was impossible. You say, I don't know if I believe in stuff like that. That's fine with me. And you can think whatever you want to think. But all I know is that it was God's way of telling me, look, son, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. You can continue to dance. And, and you know, I got to thinking about that because if there was a song that I believe that Jesus would have wanted sung after he died, it would be this. I hope you will dance. Don't look for a funeral. Look for a resurrection. Somebody ought to give God some praise in this house. Hallelujah, hallelujah. I'm closing, but I'm talking to somebody. You ought to stand to your feet. God wants to give you hope. God is talking to somebody in this house right now. And you think it's over. If it played any song, it should have been that one by Lyndon Spradlin. 
but it didn't. It jumped right around that song and with my screen locked in my back pocket, it found the one song that Kent Brown and I had in common together that we had laughed about. say pastor how do I experience resurrection disciples learn something from this event they should have learned it with Jairus when Jesus resurrected Jairus' daughter but they didn't but they, they finally got it they got it they got it when Jesus came out of that tomb and there was a woman named Dorcas a widow and she was a godly lady and she died and the disciples sit quickly from Joppa where she lived to Lydia to Lydia where Peter was at and they said hurry don't don't delay come and they wanted Peter to pray for her now she's dead but he shows up and the bible said they put her in an upper room I just thought you might want to know God can do some stuff in an upper room. He has a history working with upper rooms. And if you can get above street level and get released from the muck and the mire that surrounds you and won't let you go. God can cause resurrection. The second thing that Peter did after going to the upper room was he put everybody out, 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 out. Get out, get out, get out. Because you need to put some things out of your life if you're going to experience the power of resurrection. I'm talking to somebody you need to let go of some stuff. You need to get some voices out of your ear. People critical and negative and always talking down about things and finding fault and you're wondering why your life is not improving. They're speaking death over you. You don't let anybody speak death over you. You got enough of that going on already. You need life. And the final thing is after he went in the upper room and put everybody out he prayed and he didn't trust in his ability to pray he trusted in the ability of God to answer prayer you see all you got to do is call on him and do you know that every once in a while in your life you'll go and find yourself in the same situation Peter was in because the prayer he was praying was an impossible prayer And you know 
you really ought to pray an impossible prayer every once in a while because you will never know how big God is until you pray an impossible prayer and God answers it. And I'm talking to somebody right now that God's about to answer an impossible prayer.